Hey, good morning, good afternoon, whenever you're watching this. Hey, I have a question. Have you ever been underwater? Like more specifically, maybe you were at the pool, maybe you're at the beach and you're underwater, you sort of couldn't get to the surface and maybe someone came and rescued you. Maybe your house flooded before. Well, we're going to meet a guy who was literally emotionally and spiritually underwater and we'll learn how God is actually in control of our lives, even when we are trying to fight control and we find ourselves underwater. And so over the next couple of weeks, we'll learn how to get to the surface and experience peace in our relationship with God and others. Each week over the next four weeks, what we'll do is we'll cover a chapter in the true story of Jonah. So today, we'll talk about something that you may not hear much about at church. And the reason why is it's uncomfortable, it's personal, and quite honestly, we all do it. It's something that we all struggle with. We all do it. It's something that we tell our kids not to do. It's tell our athletes not to do, our students not to do, yet we find ourselves doing it. See, sometimes it's in response to a very big thing, and sometimes it's in response to a small thing. Sometimes it only affects a couple people, and then sometimes this thing, it affects a lot of people. We struggle with it when someone does it. When, when someone does it to us, we struggle. Some of us get very emotional when we're on the receiving end of it. We sometimes yell. We throw things. And we say things that we don't mean, and we get angry. But here's the catch. We don't like it when it affects us, and we want those to hurt. We want them to experience the hurt that we feel. We want them to experience the consequences of hurting us. Yet, when we are doing the affecting, and this is very hypocritical of all of us. We want someone to turn their head. We want to be able to escape the consequences. And the thing that I'm talking about is disobedience. Disobedience always starts with a choice. It's the choice to text while driving, speed, lie, cheat, steal. Sometimes we're tempted to do what we want to do and we give in to that temptation. And sometimes we justify our decision to do what we want to do. We say things like, oh, it was an emergency. Or I had to order that contract or we would have lost the contract. Sometimes we blame others for the lack of action. Well, they just don't understand me. They, they don't know what it's like to be me. Look, if they really knew what I know, they would say that I'm right how about some of you dads? How about some of you men? How many times have you caught yourself saying something like that? See, after the first time that we disobey, it becomes easier and easier to do it. The first time we wrestle with what we want to do. We wrestle with how we were raised, with what we really want to do. We wrestle with what we know to be true, with what we want to do. then once we disobey, it becomes easier to keep doing it. We'll discover as we walk through the first chapter of Jonah that disobedience leads to dissent, and then it leads to depression, and then it comes with collateral damage. But here's where I want you to lean in. 
Yet no matter how far you are from God, grace is always available. So let's get to the story. Over 2,000 years ago, we find the story of Jonah. And as we read his story, we're going to find that we're a lot like him. And there's going to be some personal takeaways this week and next week, and specifically this week, that reinforce that disobedience is a lid to our spiritual growth. So let's set the scene. Jonah is a prophet that God used to restore Israel's borders. Keeping his word, God, with his people, he had a promised land for them. And so King Jeroboam II was a great military leader. He was very successful and he restored the borders of where they were 200 years before David. So for those who have any military experience, expanding your borders at that time, it meant conquering. Now you have Israel expanding and then you have an empire called Assyria and they began to expand their empire and it was threatening to Israel. Let's just say that the way that Assyria conquered was a lot different than how Israel conquered. It was barbaric, it was ugly, and it was violent. So you have King Jeroboam II. He was successful with expanding the borders. But he was corrupt and he was evil. That's how he's described. Simply, he did whatever he thought was right instead of following God's law. Then he created this culture that people lived and they did whatever they felt was right and it led to evil practices. Now during this time, Israel was led by self-righteous, selfish leaders and it created self-righteous, self-centered culture. And it seems that they got caught up in nationalism. They were in that border war with Assyria and nationalism became their identity instead of being God's people. Now, perhaps what we'll read, Jonah was maybe a byproduct of his culture. We will come across that he's self-centered, he was self-righteous, and he's probably a nationalist. So here's the deal. Look, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we've made a commitment to Jesus as the leader of our lives, and not just in the life to come, but in this life now. And that means that by following him, we choose him over what feels or looks right by culture. So let's jump in to what John says. Notice this is what John says. The one who says he remains in him, any follower of Jesus, should walk just as he, Jesus, walked. So let's keep all of that in mind as we head into Jonah's story. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Now, how credible would it be to hear God audibly? <laughs> Sometimes we read the Old Testament thinking that happened quite a bit, but it really didn't. It didn't happen often. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, if God spoke to me as clear as he did Jonah, I would do whatever he said. Well, let's just keep that in mind. Let's keep that in mind. But I love how the author was very specific. There, was a, there were a bunch of Jonas. Jonah was a popular name. But he says, no, I want you to go to Jonah, son of Amlita. In, in case you have any questions about what you're reading, he's the guy. Track him down. Ask him that this really happened, if this really happened. Now, notice there's two names. You have Lord, 
which is God's personal name. Whenever you see it in the Old Testament where it's all caps, it's God's covenant name. It's his relational name between him and his people. Then you have Jonah. Now notice, Jonah's name means dove, and to Jews, dove represents peace. And also was used as a sacrifice to, be t- to provide peace between God and his people. Now as we read, his life was the opposite of a dove. He had no peace, and he wasn't even willing to provide a message of peace. Now look, If I tell Brooke to brush her teeth and get ready for bed, she knows exactly what she needs to do. Now, there's, of course, there's fighting. She's six, going on 16. There's some fighting there. But she knows that I mean business. So she stops what she's doing. She gets ready for bed. And here's the deal. I'm expecting it to happen immediately, quickly. When God told him to go, it meant now. So notice what happens. Instead of going to where he was supposed to go, he got up the fleet of Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Tarshish is a city in Spain. It was like 1,200 miles from Joppa, and Joppa was about 600 miles west of Nineveh. I mean, you couldn't get any further away I was, I was prepping for today. I, I don't know about you, but when you were a kid, you may have been a lot better than I was, but I wanted to run away. So I remember coming up with this plan. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I was well beyond, well under 16 because I couldn't drive. I remember being in my room and crafting the big idea to run away. Now, teenagers know everything, right? If you have a teenager, I'm sure you're giggling right now. You're laughing. I was tired of being told what to do. I was tired of the rules, the the chores, the lack of freedom. Although I wasn't tired of the warm house, the clean clothes, and the daily food, I was more focused on what I couldn't have than what I did have. I told myself, the next time my dad tells me to do something that I don't want to do, I am leaving. I am leaving. So the day came. My dad told me to do something that I really didn't want to do. So I went to my room. I started to pack. And while packing, I felt no remorse. I wanted out. I was determined to get out. And so with my 1980s orange pleather backpack, all my suitcase all packed, I headed into the dining room and through the kitchen, my parents and my grandparents saw me and they asked me, where are you going? I said, I'm out of here. I'm moving out. <laughs> and they did a good job with not laughing. If you know my grandfather, you know my dad, I mean, it was interesting times. And they said, where are you going to? I said, I don't know. They said, do you have any money? I said, not a lot. They said, well, how are you going to get to school tomorrow? I said, I'm not sure. I haven't figured that out yet. And they asked me another question, then another question, another question. And then I just turned around and I went back to my room and I'm thinking that was a really dumb move, Jeff. So I unpacked my 1980s leather, pleather, orange suitcase and I kind of did my chores. But here's the deal, guys. How often do we run or we escape to somewhere safe and uncomfortable? How often do we run to something that's good in nature? eating, sports, hobbies, social media. 
but it's not good for your soul. Perhaps when we don't want to deal with conflict, what do we do? We avoid it by having our nose in our phone. Perhaps when we don't want to deal with conflict, we don't want to do what we're being asked to do, we binge and we watch Netflix to escape the responsibility of what we've been given. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but twice Jonah runs away from the Lord's presence. And the term flee literally has a connotation that he's running from pursuit, that God's pursuing him and he's trying to (laughs) run away from him. By boarding the ship in Joppa, Jonah is giving God the deuce. He's like, I'm out. I'm done. I'm out. I am resigning as your prophet. I want nothing more to do with ministry. But for a prophet who was pretty certain that he understood the New Test- the Old Testament, he must have missed Psalm 139 where David asked this question, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The fact is God is everywhere at the same time. He's all present. Guys, there are times like Jonah when we are just not running away from what we're supposed to do, but we're actually running from the one who's commanding us to do it. And by doing this, we're forgetting that we can never outrun his pursuit of us. Look, have you ever noticed how many times the term down was used? Twice, in five verses. Disobedience leads to dissent. The author was intentional with using the word down twice. Jonah was on a downward spiral. When we choose to go our way instead of God's way, we are on a downward spiral. Let's get back into the story and we're going to see this downward spiral play out. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors, they were afraid. Now, they were experienced. This was a big storm. This was a great storm. And each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah, don't miss this, had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. So two things out of this. First, disobedience has collateral damage. Disobedience has collateral damage. The sailors, they were not running from God. They, they had no idea who God was. There was no social media back then for them to know who Israel's God was. Brooke asked me last night, she said, hey dad, hey, hey, have you ever, like when you were a kid, did you have, you know, that show, um, Elena of Avalar, I'm like, baby, we barely had a TV. Like, and I explained to her that our TV was like a big wooden box with some tube. And like, we had these antennas and we had like to literally stand there. So anyway, she was completely confused. She has no idea how good she has it. But the fact is, they were scared. This storm scared them to death. Look, sometimes our disobedience affects other people. Those closest to us experience the consequences of our selfishness and even at times, I really hate to say this, but our arrogance. The second thing, disobedience can lead to depression. Notice that he was in a deep 
sleep. He was depressed. He was exhausted from running. Sleep was his escape. Someone that's gone through this a a bit, a sign of depression is when someone sleeps a lot. Sleep can become an escape. See, some of us have been so angry because of disobedience that we've missed out on seasons of joy which come from obedience. So the story continues. Remember, they're scared to death. So the captain approached him. What are you doing sound asleep? Like, no one should be sleeping. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and he won't, and we won't perish. So the sailors, they're together. They say, come on, let's cast lots. And then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble that we're in. So they cast lots and Jonah was singled out. And they said to him, tell us, who is to blame for this trouble we're in? Notice that question. Don't forget that question. What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. He never answered the question. He answered some of their questions, but he didn't answer that first question. Tell us is who to blame for this trouble we're in. Then the men were seized by great fear and said to him, what have you done? Ah, they, <laughs> they gave him credit. The men knew that he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them, ah, there it all comes out. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? And the sea was getting worse and worse. Now notice what Jonah says. Pick me up, throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. Hey, throw me overboard, kill me. I know that I'm to blame. He finally admits, I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. This is crazy. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. God says, Jonah, I want you to go give a message to the people of Nineveh. He says, no, I'm going to go the other way. The sailors, I believe, valued life more than Jonah. They valued human life more than Jonah. Notice they were willing to put their life on the line for him. So they called out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life. And don't charge us. Maybe this was the first time they prayed to Jehovah. They prayed to Yahweh. They prayed to Israel's God. Don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Jehovah, Yahweh, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. The men, they were seized by great fear of the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You had non-Hebrews obey, but Jonah disobeyed. And God used Jonah's disobedience to change the lives of the sailors. So we're going to pick it up there next week. But before we go, there's a few takeaways for us. Number one, disobedience always starts with a choice. Disobedience always starts with a choice. And so does obedience. 
and so does obedience. Disobedience, I don't want you to miss this, is not just about our behavior. It's about our heart. Disobedience is not just about your behavior. It's about your heart. More specifically, our promiscuous heart. Your promiscuous heart. My promiscuous heart. God isn't interested in our behavior. He's interested in our heart, which influences our choices and behavior. This is what makes Christianity different than moralism. Being moral is focused on being good, having that satisfactory behavior. Following Christ is about a surrendered heart. Some of us may think that we've gone too far as we've broken the heart of our spouse. We've put ourselves ahead of our families. We put our head, ourselves ahead of our kids and we're in maybe too deep with debt. We may have. And maybe we are. And what it does is it requires a choice to stop, to repent, and move ahead in obedience. It will take time to reconcile or mend the relationship with your spouse, even if you do or don't get back together, kids, and to get out of that financial hole. Number two, God uses us in spite of us. God uses you in spite of you. We're just like Jonah. God used him in spite of him, in spite of his choices. And God uses us in spite of our choices. Sometimes we may never see how God uses us when we're focused on ourselves, but he does. Number three, we can never outrun God's pursuit of us. We can never outrun his pursuit of us. His grace overshadows our obedience and our disobedience. His grace can get us from being underwater relationally, emotionally, and spiritually. It just takes a choice to surrender. It takes a choice to surrender. So two questions to ask until we meet next week as we look at chapter two. One, what is causing you to run? What is causing you to run? Number two, what is keeping you from stopping, turning around, and embracing God and his word? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, no one wants to be called out. Like, I don't even want to be called out. But Father, sometimes it's really important for us to be called out so that we can get better. So Father, I'm asking that you will help those who are listening. God, that they would be challenged. They would ask the tough question of why they are running. They would answer that question. And then they would stop. They would repent. They would make that right with you. They would make that right with other people. And they would begin that process of surrendering to you. God, I'm asking that you will help us to do the hard work. God, give us the strength to do the hard work. Help us to honor you when we do the hard work. In Jesus' name, amen.